Section 97 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Section 97, Part 2, Book the Eighth, Chapter 7. Storms of men are worse than storms of oceans. The doors were closed again. The usher of the black rod re-entered. The Lord's commissioners left the bench of state, took their places at the top of the Duke's benches, by right of their commission, and the Lord Chancellor addressed the House. My Lords, the House, having deliberated for several days on the bill which proposes to augment by one hundred thousand pounds sterling the annual provision for His Royal Highness the Prince, Her Majesty's Consort, and the debate having been exhausted and closed, the House will proceed to vote. The votes will be taken, according to custom, beginning with the puny baron. Each Lord, on his name being called, will rise and answer, content, or non-content, and will be at liberty to explain the motives of his vote, if he thinks fit to do so. Clerk, take the vote. The clerk of the house, standing up, opened a large folio, and spread it open on a gilded desk. This book was the list of the peerage. The puny of the House of Lords at that time was John Hervey, created baron and peer in 1703, from whom is descended the Marquis of Bristol. The clerk called... My Lord John Baron Hervey, an old man in a fair wig rose, and said, Content. Then he sat down. The clerk registered his vote. The clerk continued, My Lord Francis Seymour, Baron Conway of Kilotag. Content, murmured, half-rising, an elegant young man, with a face like a page, who little thought that he was to be ancestor to the Marquises of Hertford. "'My Lord John Levison, Baron Gower,' continued the clerk. This baron, from whom were to spring the Dukes of Sutherland, rose, and, as he reseated himself, said, "'Content.' The clerk went on. "'My Lord Heneage Finch, Baron Guernsey. The ancestor of the Earls of Aylesford, neither older nor less elegant than the ancestor of the Marquises of Hertford, justified his device.' Aperto viver voto, by the proud tone in which he exclaimed, Content. Whilst he was resuming his seat, the clerk called the fifth baron, My Lord John Baron Granville. Rising and resuming his seat quickly, Content, exclaimed Lord Granville, of Potheridge, whose peerage was to become extinct in 1709. The clerk passed to the sixth, My Lord Charles Montague, Baron Halifax. Content, said Lord Halifax, the bearer of a title which had become extinct in the Saville family, and was destined to become extinct again in that of Montague. Montague is distinct from Montague and Montacute, and Lord Halifax added, Prince George has an allowance as Her Majesty's consort. He has another as Prince of Denmark, another as Duke of Cumberland, another as Lord High Admiral of England and Ireland but he has not one as commander-in-chief. This is an injustice and a wrong which must be set right in the interest of the English people. 
Then Lord Halifax passed a eulogium on the Christian religion, abused popery, and voted the subsidy. Lord Halifax sat down, and the clerk resumed. My Lord Christopher Baron Barnard, Lord Barnard, from whom were to descend the Dukes of Cleveland, rose to answer to his name. Content. He took some time in reseating himself, for he wore a lace band which was worth showing. For all that, Lord Barnard was a worthy gentleman and a brave officer. While Lord Barnard was resuming his seat, the clerk, who read by routine, hesitated for an instant. He readjusted his spectacles and leaned over the register with renewed attention. Then, lifting up his head, he said, My Lord Fermain Clancharlie, Baron Clancharlie, and Hunkerville. Gwynplaine arose. Non content, said he. Every face was turned towards him. Gwynplaine remained standing. The branches of candles, placed on each side of the throne, lighted up his features, and marked them against the darkness of the august chambers in the relief with which a mask might show against a background of smoke. Gwynplaine had made that effort over himself, which, it may be remembered, was possible to him in extremity. By a concentration of will, equal to that which would be needed to cow a tiger, he had succeeded in obliterating for a moment the fatal grin upon his face. For an instant he no longer laughed. This effort could not last long. Rebellion against that which is our law, or our fatality, must be short-lived. At times the waters of the sea resist the power of gravitation, swell into a waterspout, and become a mountain, but only on the condition of falling back again. Such a struggle was Gwynplaine's. For an instant, which he felt to be a solemn one, by a prodigious intensity of will, but for not much longer than a flash of lightning lasts, he had thrown over his brow the dark veil of his soul. He held in suspense his incurable laugh. From that face upon which it had been carved, he had withdrawn the joy. Now it was nothing but terrible. "'Who is this man?' exclaimed all. "'That forest of hair!' those dark hollows under the brows, the deep gaze of eyes which they could not see, that head, on the wild outlines of which light and darkness mingled weirdly, were a wonder indeed. It was beyond all understanding. Much as they had heard of him, the sight of Gwynplaine was a terror. Even those who expected much found their expectations surpassed. It was as though on the mountain reserved for the gods. During the banquet on a serene evening, the whole of the all-powerful body being gathered together, the face of Prometheus, mangled by the vulture's beak, should have suddenly appeared before them, like a blood-colored moon on the horizon. Olympus looking on Caucasus. What a vision! Old and young, open-mouthed with surprise, fixed their eyes upon Gwynplaine. An old man, respected by the whole house, who had seen many men and many things, and who was intended for a dukedom, Thomas Earl of Wharton, rose in terror. "'What does all this mean?' he cried. "'Who has brought this man into the house? Let him be put out.' And addressing Gwynplaine haughtily, "'Who are you? Whence do you come?' Gwynplaine answered, "'Out of the depths.' And folding his arms, he looked at the lords. Who am I? I am wretchedness, my lords. I have a word to say to you. A shudder ran through the house. Then all was silence. Gwynplaine continued. 
My lords, you are highly placed. It is well. We must believe that God has his reasons that it should be so. You have power, opulence, pleasure, the sun ever shining in your zenith, authority unbounded, enjoyment without a sting, and a total forgetfulness of others. So be it. But there is something below you, above you it may be. My lords, I bring you news, news of the existence of mankind. Assemblies are like children. A strange occurrence is as a jack-in-the-box to them. It frightens them, but they like it. It is as if a spring were touched and a devil jumps up. Mirabeau, who was also deformed, was a case in point in France. Gwynplaine felt within himself at that moment a strange elevation. In addressing a body of men, one's foot seems to rest on them, to rest, as it were, on a pinnacle of souls, on human hearts, that quiver under one's heel. Gwynplaine was no longer the man who had been, only the night before, almost mean. The fumes of the sudden elevation which had disturbed him had cleared off and become transparent, and in the state in which Gwynplaine had been seduced by a vanity he now saw but a duty. That which had at first lessened now elevated him. He was illuminated by one of those great flashes which emanate from duty. All round Gwynplaine arose cries of, Hear, hear! Meanwhile, rigid and superhuman, he succeeded in maintaining on his features that severe and sad contraction under which the laugh was fretting like a wild horse, struggling to escape. He resumed, I am he who cometh out of the depths. My lords, you are great and rich. There lies your danger. You profit by the night, but beware. The dawn is all-powerful. You cannot prevail over it. It is coming. Nay, it is come. Within it is the day-spring of irresistible light. And who shall hinder that sling from hurling the sun into the sky? The sun I speak of is right. You are privilege. Tremble. The real master of the house is about to knock at the door. What is the father of privilege? Chance. What is his son? Abuse. Neither chance nor abuse are abiding. For both a dark morrow is at hand. I am come to warn you. I am come to impeach your happiness. It is fashioned out of the misery of your neighbor. You have everything, and that everything is composed of the nothing of others. My lords, I am an advocate without hope, pleading a cause that is lost but that cause God will gain on appeal. As for me, I am but a voice. Mankind is a mouth, of which I am the cry. You shall hear me. I am about to open before you, peers of England, the great assize of the people, of that sovereign who is the subject, of that criminal who is the judge. I am weighed down under the load of all that I have to say. Where am I to begin? I know not. I have gathered together, in the vast diffusion of suffering, my innumerable and scattered pleas. What am I to do with them now? They overwhelm me, and I must cast them to you in a confused mass. Did I foresee this? No. You are astonished. So am I. Yesterday I was a mountebank. Today I am a peer. Deep play. Of whom? Of the unknown. Let us all tremble. My lords, all the blue sky is for you. Of this immense universe you see but the sunshine. Believe me, it has its shadows. 
Amongst you I am called Lord Fermain Clancharlie, but my true name is one of poverty, Gwynplaine. I am a wretched thing carved out of the stuff of which the great are made, for such was the pleasure of a king. That is my history. Many amongst you knew my father. I knew him not. His connection with you was his feudal descent. His outlawry is the bond between him and me. What God willed was well. I was cast into the abyss. For what end? To search its depths. I am a diver, and I have brought back the pearl. Truth. I speak because I know. You shall hear me, my lords. I have seen. I have felt. Suffering is not a mere word, ye happy ones. Poverty I grew up in. Winter has frozen me. Hunger I have tasted. Contempt I have suffered. Pestilence I have undergone. Shame I have drunk of. And I will vomit all these up before you. And this ejection of all misery shall sully your feet and flame about them. I hesitated before I allowed myself to be brought to the place where I now stand, because I have duties to others elsewhere, and my heart is not here. What passed within me has nothing to do with you. When the man whom you call Usher of the Black Rod came to seek me by order of the woman whom you called the Queen, the idea struck me for a moment that I would refuse to come. But it seemed to me that the hidden hand of God pressed me to the spot, and I obeyed. I felt that I must come amongst you. Why? Because of my rags of yesterday. It is to raise my voice among those who have eaten their fill that God mixed me up with the famished. Oh, have pity! Of this fateful world to which you believe yourselves to belong, you know nothing. Placed so high, you are out of it. But I will tell you what it is. I have had experience enough. I come from beneath the pressure of your feet. I can tell you your weight. Oh, you who are masters, do you know what you are? Do you see what you are doing? No. Oh, it is dreadful. One night, one night of storm, a little deserted child, an orphan alone in the immeasurable creation, I made my entrance into that darkness which you call society. The first thing that I saw was the law, under the form of a gibbet. The second was riches, your riches, under the form of a woman dead of cold and hunger. The third, the future, under the form of a child left to die. The fourth, goodness, truth, and justice, under the figure of a vagabond whose sole friend and companion was a wolf. Just then, Gwynplaine, stricken by a sudden emotion, felt the sobs rising in his throat, causing him, most unfortunately, to burst into an uncontrollable fit of laughter. The contagion was immediate. A cloud had hung over the assembly. It might have broken into terror. It broke into delight. Mad merriment seized the whole house. Nothing pleases the great chambers of sovereign man so much as buffoonery. It is their revenge upon their graver moments. The laughter of kings is like the laughter of the gods. There is always a cruel point in it. The lords set to play. Sneers gave sting to their laughter. They clapped their hands around the speaker and insulted him. A volley of merry exclamations assailed him like bright but wounding hailstones. Bravo, Gwynplaine! Bravo, laughing man! Bravo, snout of the green box! 
Mask of Terenzo Field. You are going to give us a performance. That's right. Talk away. There's a funny fellow. How the beast does laugh, to be sure. Good day, Pantaloon. How d'ye do, my lord clown? Go on with your speech, that fellow a peer of England. Go on. No, no. Yes, yes. The Lord Chancellor was much disturbed. A deaf peer, James Butler, Duke of Ormond, placing his hand to his ear like an ear trumpet, asked Charles Beauclerk, Duke of St. Albans, How has he voted? None content. By heavens, said Ormond, I can understand it with such a face as his. Do you think that you can ever recapture a crowd once it has escaped your grasp, and all assemblies are crowds alike? No, eloquence is a bit, and if the bit breaks, the audience runs away and rushes on till it has thrown the orator. Hearers naturally dislike the speaker, which is a fact not as clearly understood as it ought to be. Instinctively he pulls the reins, but that is a useless expedient. However, all orators try it, as Gwynplaine did. He looked for a moment at those men who were laughing at him. Then he cried, so, you insult misery. Silence, peers of England. Judges, listen to my pleading. Oh, I conjure you, have pity. Pity for whom? Pity for yourselves. Who is in danger? Yourselves. Do you not see that you are in a balance, and that there is in one scale your power, and in the other your responsibility? It is God who is weighing you. Oh, do not laugh. Think. The trembling of your consciences is the oscillation of the balance in which God is weighing your actions. You are not wicked. You are like other men, neither better nor worse. You believe yourselves to be gods, but be ill tomorrow, and see your divinity shivering in fever. We are worth one as much as the other. I address myself to honest men. There are such here. I address myself to lofty intellects. There are such here. I address myself to generous souls. There are such here. You are fathers, sons, and brothers. Therefore, you are often touched. He amongst you who has this morning watched the awakening of his little child is a good man. Hearts are all alike. Humanity is nothing but a heart. Between those who oppress and those who are oppressed, there is but a difference of place. Your feet tread on the heads of men. The fault is not yours, it is that of the social babble. The building is faulty, and out of the perpendicular. One floor bears down the other. Listen, and I will tell you what to do. Oh, as you are powerful, be brotherly. As you are great, be tender. If you only knew what I have seen. Alas, what gloom is there beneath? The people are in a dungeon. How many are condemned who are innocent? No daylight no air, no virtue. They are without hope. And yet there is the danger. They expect something. Realize all this misery. There are beings who live in death. There are little girls who at twelve begin by prostitution, and who end in old age at twenty. As to the seventies of the criminal code, they are fearful. I speak somewhat at random, and do not pick my words. I say everything that comes into my head. No later than yesterday, I, who stand here, saw a man lying in chains, 
naked, with stones piled on his chest, expire in torture. Do you know of these things? No. If you knew what goes on, you would not dare to be happy. Who of you have been to Newcastle-upon-Tyne? There, in the mines, are men who chew coals to fill their stomachs and deceive hunger. Look here, in Lancashire. Ribblechester has sunk by poverty, from a town to a village. I do not see that Prince George of Denmark requires a hundred thousand pounds extra. I should prefer receiving a poor sick man into the hospital without compelling him to pay his funeral expenses in advance. In Carnarvon and at Stratmore, as well as at Strathbickon, the exhaustion of the poor is horrible. At Stratford they cannot drain the marsh for want of money. The manufactories are shut up all over Lancashire. There is forced idleness everywhere. Do you know that the herring fishers at Harlech eat grass when the fishery fails? Do you know that at Burton Lazars there are still lepers confined, on whom they fire if they leave their tan houses? At Aylesbury, a town of which one of you is lord, destitution is chronic. At Pankridge, in Coventry, where you have just endowed a cathedral and enriched a bishop, there are no beds in the cabins, and they dig holes in the earth in which to put the little children to lie, so that instead of beginning life in the cradle, they begin it in the grave. I have seen these things. My lords, do you know who pays the taxes you vote? The dying. Alas, you deceive yourselves. You are going the wrong road. You augment the poverty of the poor to increase the riches of the rich. You should do the reverse. What? Take from the worker to give to the idle? Take from the tattered to give to the well-clad? Take from the beggar to give to the prince? Oh, yes, I have old Republican blood in my veins. I have a horror of these things. How I execrate kings! And how shameless are the women! I have been told a sad story. How I hate Charles the Second. A woman whom my father loved gave herself to that king whilst my father was dying in exile. The prostitute. Charles the Second, James the Second, after a scamp, a scoundrel. What is there in a king? A man, feeble and contemptible, subject to wants and infirmities. Of what good is a king? You cultivate that parasite royalty. You make a serpent of that worm, a dragon of that insect. Oh, pity the poor! You increase the weight of the taxes for the profit of the throne. Look to the laws which you decree. Take heed of the suffering swarms which you crush. Cast your eyes down. Look at what is at your feet. O oh, ye great, there are the little. Have pity. Yes, have pity on yourselves, for the people is in its agony. And when the lower part of the trunk dies, the higher parts die too. Death spares no limb. When night comes, no one can keep his corner of daylight. Are you selfish? Then save others. The destruction of the vessel cannot be a matter of indifference to any passenger. There can be no wreck for some that is not wreck for all. Oh, believe it, the abyss yawns for all. The laughter increased and became irresistible. For that matter, such extravagance as there was in his words was sufficient to amuse any assembly. To be comic without and tragic within, what suffering can be more humiliating? What pain deeper? Gwynplaine felt it. His words were an appeal in one direction, his face in the other. 
What a terrible position was his! Suddenly his voice rang out in strident bursts. How gay these men are! Be it so! Here is irony face to face with agony, a sneer mocking the death-rattle. They are all-powerful. Perhaps so. Be it so. We shall see. Behold, I am one of them. I am also one of you. O ye poor, a king sold me, a poor man sheltered me. Who mutilated me? A prince. Who healed and nourished me? A pauper. I am Lord Clancharlie, but I am still Gwynplaine. I take my place amongst the great, but I belong to the mean. I am amongst those who rejoice, but I am with those who suffer. Oh, this system of society is false. Some day will come that which is true, then there will be no more lords, and there shall be free and living men. There will be no more masters, there will be fathers. Such is the future. No more prostrations, no more baseness, no more ignorance, no more human beasts of burden, no more courtiers, no more toadies, no more kings. But light! In the meantime, see me here. I have a right, and I will use it. Is it a right? No. If I use it for myself? Yes, if I use it for all. I will speak to you, my lords, being one of you. O oh, my brothers below, I will tell them of your nakedness. I will rise up with a bundle of the people's rags in my hand. I will shake off over the masters the misery of the slaves, and these favored and arrogant ones shall no longer be able to escape the remembrance of the wretched, nor the princes the itch of the poor, and so much the worse, if it be the bite of vermin, and so much the better, if it awake the lions from their slumber. Here Gwynplaine turned towards the kneeling underclerks, who were writing on the fourth woolsack. Who are those fellows kneeling down? What are you doing? Get up! You are men! These words, suddenly addressed to inferiors whom a lord ought not even to perceive, increased the merriment to the utmost. They had cried, Bravo! Now they shouted, Hurrah! From clapping their hands they proceeded to stamping their feet. One might have been back in the green box, only that there the laughter applauded Gwynplaine. Here it exterminated him. The effort of ridicule is to kill. Men's laughter sometimes exerts all its power to murder. The laughter proceeded to action. Sneering words rained down upon him. Humor is the folly of assemblies. Their ingenious and foolish ridicule shuns facts instead of studying them, and condemns questions instead of solving them. Any extraordinary occurrence is a point of interrogation. To laugh at it is like laughing at an enigma. But the sphinx, which never laughs, is behind it. Contradictory shouts arose. Enough! Enough! Encore! Encore! William Farmer, Baron Limester, flung at Gwynplaine the insult cast by Rye. Quinney at Shakespeare. Histrio! Mima! Lord Vaughan, a sententious man, twenty-ninth on the Baron's bench, exclaimed, We must be back in the days when animals had the gift of speech. In the midst of human tongues, the jaw of a beast has spoken. Listen to Balaam's ass, added Lord Yarmouth. Lord Yarmouth presented that appearance of sagacity produced by a round nose and a crooked mouth. The rebel Linnaeus is chastised in his tomb. 
the son is the punishment of the father said john hugh bishop of lichfield and coventry whose prebendary gwynplaine's attack has glanced he lies said lord calmondily the legislator so well read up in the law that which he calls torture is only the peine forte et dure and a very good thing too torture is not practised in england thomas wentworth baron rabbi addressed the chancellor my lord chancellor adjourn the house no no let him go on he is amusing hurrah hip 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 thus shouted the young lords their fun amounting to fury four of them especially were in the full exasperation of hilarity and hate these were lawrence hyde earl of rochester thomas tufton earl of thanet viscount hatton and the duke of montague to your tricks gwynplaine cried rochester put him out put him out shouted thanet viscount hatton drew from his pocket a penny which he flung to gwynplaine and john campbell earl of greenwich savage earl rivers thompson baron haversham warrington Eskrick rolston rockingham carteret langdale barchester maynard hudson carnarvon cavendish burlington robert darcy earl of holderness other windsor earl of plymouth applauded there was a tumult as of pandemonium or of pantheon in which the words of gwynplaine were lost amidst it all there was heard but one word of gwynplaine's beware ralph duke of montague recently down from oxford and still a beardless youth descended from the bench of dukes where he sat the nineteenth in order and placed himself in front of gwynplaine with his arms folded in a sword there is a spot which cuts sharpest and in a voice an accent which insults most keenly montague spoke with that accent and sneering with his face close to that of gwynplaine shouted what are you talking about i am prophesying said gwynplaine the laughter exploded anew and below this laughter anger growled its continued bass one of the miners lionel cranfield sackville earl of dorset and middlesex stood upon his seat not smiling but grave as became a future legislator and without saying a word looked at gwynplaine with his fresh twelve-year-old face and shrugged his shoulders whereat the bishop of st asaph's whispered in the ear of the bishop of st david's who was sitting beside him as he pointed to gwynplaine there is the fool then pointing to the child there is the sage a chaos of complaint rose from amidst the confusion of exclamation gorgon's face what does it all mean an insult to the house the fellow ought to be put out what a madman shame shame adjourn the house no let him finish his speech talk away you buffoon lord lewis of duras with his arms akimbo shouted ah it does one good to laugh my spleen is cured i propose a vote of thanks in these terms the house of lords returns thanks to the green box gwynplaine it may be remembered had dreamt of a different welcome a man who climbing up a steep and crumbling acclivity of sand above a giddy precipice has felt it giving way under his hands his nails his elbows his knees his feet 
who, losing instead of gaining on his treacherous way, a prey to every terror of the danger, slipping back instead of ascending, increasing the certainty of his fall by his very efforts to gain the summit, and, losing ground in every struggle for safety, has felt the abyss approaching nearer and nearer, until the certainty of his coming fall into the yawning jaws open to receive him has frozen the marrow of his bones. That man has experienced the sensations of Gwynplaine. He felt the ground he had ascended crumbling under him, and his audience was the precipice. There was always some one to say the word which sums all up. Lord Scarsdale translated the impression of the assembly in one exclamation. "'What is the monster doing here?' Gwynplaine stood up, dismayed and indignant, in a sort of final convulsion. He looked at them all fixedly. "'What am I doing here? I have come to be a terror to you. I am a monster, do you say? No, I am the people. I am an exception? No, I am the rule. You are the exception. You are the chimera. I am the reality. I am the frightful man who laughs. Who laughs at what? At you, at himself, at everything.' What is his laugh? Your crime and its torment. That crime he flings at your head. That punishment he spits in your face. I laugh, and that means I weep. He paused. There was less noise. The laughter continued, but it was more subdued. He may have fancied that he had regained a certain amount of attention. He breathed again and resumed. This laugh which is on my face, a king place there. This laugh expresses the desolation of mankind. This laugh means hate, enforced silence, rage, despair. This laugh is the production of torture. This laugh is a forced laugh. If Satan were marked with this laugh, it would convict God. But the Eternal is not like them that perish. Being absolute, he is just, and God hates the acts of kings. Oh, you take me for an exception, but I am a symbol. Oh, all-powerful men, fools that you are, open your eyes. I am the incarnation of all. I represent humanity, such as its masters have made it. Mankind is mutilated. That which has been done to me has been done to it. In it have been deformed right, justice, truth, reason, intelligence, as eyes, nostrils, and ears have been deformed in me, its heart has been made a sink of passion and pain, like mine, and, like mine, its features have been hidden in a mask of joy. Where God had placed his finger, the king set his sign manual. Monstrous superposition. Bishops, peers, and princes, the people is a sea of suffering, smiling on the surface. My lords, I tell you that the people are as I am. Today you oppress them, today you hoot at me. But the future is the ominous thaw in which that which was as stone shall become wave. The appearance of solidity melts into liquid. A crack in the ice, and all is over. There will come an hour when convulsion shall break down your oppression, when an angry roar will reply to your jeers. Nay, that hour did come. Thou wert of it. O my father, that hour of God did come, and was called the Republic. It was destroyed, but it will return. Meanwhile, 
Remember that the line of kings armed with the sword was broken by Cromwell, armed with the axe. Tremble. Incorruptible solutions are at hand. The talons which were cut are growing again. The tongues which were torn out are floating away. They are turning to tongues of fire, and scattered by the breath of darkness, are shouting through infinity. Those who hunger are showing their idle teeth. False heavens built over real hells are tottering. The people are suffering. They are suffering, and that which is on high totters, and that which is below yawns. Darkness demands its change to light. The damned discuss the elect. Behold, it is the coming of the people, the ascent of mankind, the beginning of the end, the red dawn of the catastrophe. Yes, all these things are in this laugh of mine, at which you laugh today. London is one perpetual fete. Be it so, from one end to the other, England rings with acclamation. Well, but listen, all that you see is I. You have your fetes, they are my laugh. You have your public rejoicings, they are my laugh. You have your weddings, consecrations, and coronations, they are my laugh. The births of your princes are my laugh, but above you is the thunderbolt. It is my laugh. How could they stand such nonsense? The laughter burst out afresh, and now it was overwhelming. Of all the lava which that crater, the human mouth, ejects, the most corrosive is joy. To inflict evil gaily is a contagion which no crowd can resist. All executions do not take place on the scaffold, and men, from the moment they are in a body, whether in mobs or in senates, have always a ready executioner amongst them, called sarcasm. There is no torture to be compared to that of the wretched condemned to execution by ridicule. This was Gwynplaine's fate. He was stoned with their jokes, and riddled by the scoffs shot at him. He stood there a mark for all. They sprang up, they cried, encore, they shook with laughter, they stamped their feet, they pulled each other's bands. The majesty of the place, the purple of the robes, the chaste ermine, the dignity of the wigs, had no effect. The lords laughed, the bishops laughed, the judges laughed, the old men's benches derided, the children's benches were in convulsions. The Archbishop of Canterbury nudged the Archbishop of York. Henry Compton, Bishop of London, brother of Lord Northampton, held his sides. The Lord Chancellor bent down his head, probably to conceal his inclination to laugh. And at the bar, the Statue of Respect, the Usher of the Black Rod, was laughing also. Gwynplaine became pallid had folded his arms, and surrounded by all those faces, young and old, in which had burst forth this grand Homeric jubilee, in that whirlwind of clapping hands, of stamping feet, and of hurrahs, in that mad buffoonery, of which he was the centre, in that splendid overflow of hilarity, in the midst of that unmeasured gaiety, he felt that the sepulchre was within him. All was over. He could no longer master the face which betrayed, nor the audience which insulted him. That eternal and fatal law by which the grotesque is linked with the sublime, by which the laugh re-echoes the groan, parody rides behind despair, and seeming is opposed to being, had never found more terrible expression. Never had a light more sinister illumined the depths of human darkness. 
Gwynplaine was assisting at the final destruction of his destiny by a burst of laughter. The irremediable was in this. Having fallen, we can raise ourselves up, but being pulverized, never. And the insult of their sovereign mockery had reduced him to dust. From thenceforth, nothing was possible. Everything is in accordance with the scene. That which was triumph in the green box was disgrace and catastrophe in the House of Lords. What was applause there was insult here. He felt something like the reverse side of his mask. On one side of that mask he had the sympathy of the people, who welcomed Gwynplaine. On the other, the contempt of the great, rejecting Lord Fermain Clancharlie. On one side, attraction, on the other, repulsion, both leading him towards the shadows. He felt himself, as it were, struck from behind. Fate strikes treacherous blows. Everything will be explained hereafter, but in the meantime, destiny is a snare, and man sinks into its pitfalls. He had expected to rise, and was welcomed by laughter. Such apotheoses have lugubrious terminations. There is a dreary expression, to be sobered, tragical wisdom born of drunkenness. In the midst of that tempest of gaiety, commingled with ferocity, Gwynplaine fell into a reverie. An assembly in mad merriment drifts as chance directs, and loses its compass when it gives itself to laughter. None knew whither they were tending, nor what they were doing. The house was obliged to rise, adjourned by the Lord Chancellor, owing to extraordinary circumstances, to the next day. The peers broke up. They bowed to the royal throne and departed. Echoes of prolonged laughter were heard losing themselves in the corridors. Assemblies, besides their official doors, have, under tapestry, under projections, and under arches, all sorts of hidden doors, by which the members escape like water through the cracks in a vase. In a short time the chamber was deserted. This takes place quickly and almost imperceptibly, and those places, so lately full of voices, are suddenly given back to silence. Reverie carries one far, and one comes by long dreaming to reach, as it were, another planet. Gwynplaine suddenly awoke from such a dream. He was alone. The chamber was empty. He had not even observed that the house had been adjourned. All the peers had departed, even his sponsors. There only remained here and there some of the lower officers of the house, waiting for his lordship to depart before they put the covers on and extinguished the lights. Mechanically, he placed his hat on his head, and, leaving his place, directed his steps to the great door opening into the gallery. As he was passing through the opening in the bar, a doorkeeper relieved him of his peer's robes. This he scarcely felt. In another instant he was in the gallery. The officials who remained observed with astonishment that the peer had gone out without bowing to the throne. End of section 97. Recording by William Tomko.